You're listening to Star Style. Be the star you are with hosts Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. Be the star you are is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation to improve literacy and positive media. All contributions and donations are tax deductible. To comment on today's show, please call in toll free at 1-866-613-1612. That's 1-866-613-1612. Or send an email to info at be the star you are.org. Now back to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with the Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan. Be the star you are. Well, hello, Power Partners, and thanks for joining me here on the world's number one hour of talk, Star Style, Be the Star You Are. I am your host, Cynthia Bryan, and this program is brought to you by Be the Star You Are, charity empowering women, family, and youth through improved literacy and positive media. Boy, do we have a jam-packed show for you today. The Miracle Moment is brought to you by Star Style Productions for expert coaching in writing, acting, media, and presentations. Call 925-377-STAR. And this is by Og Mandino. I will persist until I succeed. Always will I take another step. And if that's of no avail, I will take another and then yet another. And in truth, one step at a time is not too difficult. I know that small attempts repeated will complete any undertaking. And that's what our show is all about today is persistence prevailing and going the mile. In our first segment here, you're going to meet two of the first place winners in the fifth annual essay contest for Be the Star You Are. We're very excited about that. We have Maggie and TL with us. In segment two, you're going to be talking with Holly Holland, who has written a book about her bipolar disorder. It's called Soaring and Crashing. And in segment three, we have Dr. Kevin Fleming with the half-truth high as he breaks the illusions of the most powerful drug in life and business. Well, now, right immediately, we're going to our essay winners. Now, every year, Be the Star You Are charity sponsors a national writing contest. This year was particularly challenging for the judges as all the entries were really, really incredible. We had three topics. Uh, one was women from around the world understanding the similarities and differences of the role of women in various cultures. The second uh, area that you could enter was journaling your way to a better life, how writing your fears, moments of gratitude, and aspirations can help a person achieve goals in life. And then the last one was how reading was changed your life and what book most influenced you and why. Well, our two first place winners were T.R.R. T.L. Cooper, who wrote a fabulous essay called Common Values, and Maggie DiGiovanni, who wrote Journaling for Life. Hello, T.L. and Maggie. Hello. Hello, Cynthia. And welcome to Be the Star You Are. Well, I think what we'll, we'll start with, Maggie was a winner in uh, one of our very first essay contests. So, Maggie, you must be excited that you have won once again. I am thrilled. I really didn't expect it. <laughs> you never think that it's gonna that lightning will strike twice, but you know when you persist and you do things, it, it actually does, doesn't it? 
It certainly does. Well, and we're going to have you read your story here, and but I just want to, uh, for a second, say hello to T.L., who wrote about common values, and what is interesting about your uh, essay that you wrote, T.L., is that you were writing about women around the, uh, around the world and the perceived difference, and you're also going to talk to us today about your book, right? Uh, yes, a little bit. Yes, good. Well, why don't we start, Maggie, uh, with you, if you don't mind. You are a wife, a mother. You're the author of a children's book called Henley the Frozen Hedgehog, and you are working on a children's novel, Good Boy, Little Guy, and Old Man, about a Scottish terrier. Uh, and so I thought maybe you could start with your uh, entry that is the winning entry, and, and then we'll have T.L. read hers, and then we can just talk to you both a little bit more about what else you're doing in life. Will that be all right? That sounds great. Okay, so Maggie, your entry was called Journaling for Life, and you can just take it away. This is Maggie DiGiovanni. Thank you so much. Our daughter, Jamie, born with Down syndrome, turned our world upside down. My husband and I found ways to cope and face the many situations her special life would demand from us. I turned to writing, as I had done since meticulously printing my first short story at age 10. Over the years, the good and bad poured from my pen onto paper until the computer came into vogue at our home. It became the master of storage, holding every word put in its charge when my heart ached or overflowed with happiness. Journaling sorted out words from six doctors to make them manageable in a mind coping with blessings and the challenges handed to us by God. When the diagnosis first came in, we thought Jamie had been punished for something we did wrong. Writing helped me to see the blessing she was meant to be. She came as a teacher, without bias, who for her 30 years has taught us love, patience, and to make every moment special. We may really see a butterfly once. She sees it as a miracle every time. Before Jamie, her brother came into our lives. Through journaling his life, I saw a happy boy grow into manhood. He refused drugs and decided after trying a cigarette he enjoyed it too much, so he tossed the rest of the pack away. When he married and moved away, journaling every email and telephone communication from him and his wife brought them closer. The long months between visits passed faster as their lives took shape on my keyboard. Bruce and I went through ups and downs like every married couple. But throughout the years, we felt the immortality of most people under 45. 58 brought us face-to-face with death. The old fellow with the scythe came close enough. His fetid breath struck our faces and filled our nostrils. After Bruce took early retirement from the federal government, we opened a boat dealership in Florida. His dream became mine, and success was the reward. Within less than two years, Our dealership hit number six on the east coast of the United States for our power cats. Bruce ran the business while I worked outside it. The sun dimmed on the venture when the manufacturer went after capital. He got it, but at a price of the backer taking over the whole west coast of Florida. Six dealerships sank in the sands of Florida shores. Without the dealership stopping him, Bruce finally made a much-needed visit to the doctor He went into the hospital a day later for six heart bypasses. The day of his appointment, we received a call from one of our best friends, her husband, Bruce's buddy for almost 40 years, died of complications from a heart-lung transplant. 
The combination was almost more than my husband could bear. He could not get on an airplane with the possibility of a major heart attack looming over him. Every night I wrote, sometimes a little, occasionally page after page. Anger, fear, and joy rippled across the pages. Anger that we lost our dream business. Fear my husband might not survive the operation. And joy that the business closed as he tended so that he tended to his health before it was too late. A week after he went in, Bruce came home. Exactly one week later, he returned to the hospital with massive infections in the wound and his bloodstream. He stayed two long months, getting more depressed with each passing day. The morning his doctor was to let him come home, he discovered more infection. He gave me a choice. Take my husband home with his chest open so the wound would heal from the inside out or leave him in the hospital. I considered the depression taking over his life and opted to bring him home. Under a nurse's instruction, I learned to change bandages and pack the wound four times a day. I worked at a resort, and my manager decided Bruce's illness was inconvenient for the office, so he requested I resign. Our income was down to Bruce's retirement check, and bills were rising fast. Two renters moved out after savaging the properties, and my sister needed shelter from her bipolar husband. Fingers burned across the keyboard in the evening, solving hurts, finding blessings, and sometimes wondering why so much had befallen us. Last week, I ran across the journals from that time frame and smiled when I saw one page. It had two columns, one entitled Problems and the other Blessings. The surprise came when I discovered there was a blessing for every problem, and at least once the blessings doubled. Here is the list. Problem, lost our business. The blessing, gained my husband's life. Problem, Bruce's operation. The blessings, great surgeon. And we brought our family back together. Problem, lost my job. But the blessing, I gained time with my family. Problem, two rental properties destroyed. Blessing, I met my nephew, a master builder, and we rebuilt the rentals. I introduced him to his new wife. Problem, sister needed shelter and care. But the blessing, I always wanted a chance to know sis better because I left home when she was only 12. Note to myself, look at this list when you think life is too much. You're given so much, even when troubles abound. Journaling pulled me through the bad and increased the impact of the good. It began as the dawn of despair, bursting into full sunlight of crisp perspective. If I could recommend to anyone only three things they should do in their lives, the first would be hand problems over to God. Give your family and friends love without bounds. And third, write every day of your life. It has brought peace in times of turmoil and understanding in times of anger. That is so beautiful, and we can see here how it fits with our theme of persistence and how journaling really changed your life. Maggie, thank you so much for that. It inspired the judges to always look at the blessings instead of the problems. Well, thank you. (laughs) Well, and you have definitely had so much to overcome, yet you always have a smile. Well, stay on the line here so that you can hear T.L. Coopers, and she's the author of All She Ever Wanted, and she has her co-winning essay that was called Common Values, and this is such a great look at a different look of women around the world. Take it away, T.L. 
Well, before I begin, I want to say that that truly was beautiful. I enjoyed Maggie's very much. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. You can see how difficult this was because everyone had just really just such a touching story. So it's it's so wonderful that people are out there writing and sharing, you know, their visions. So, T.L., yours is also inspiring. Oh, thank you. Okay, um, here we go. The media, movies, literature, history classes, religion, and family beliefs bombard us with the differences between cultures from around the world on a regular basis. We rarely notice our similarities. We certainly don't celebrate either. If we wish to understand and connect with cultures other than our own, we need to shift our focus to our commonalities. When I first met my Middle Eastern in-laws after eight years of marriage, I felt nervous about the differences or commonalities we would discover. I soon discovered the Western world's belief that Middle Eastern women are all submissive and treated like second-class citizens is exaggerated. Women there are as diverse as in the United States. Women hold jobs, including management positions. Women struggle with the same work-family balance issues. Wives argued with their husbands. Wearing the traditional dress and hijab wasn't forced. Those who chose not to wear it weren't condemned, harassed, or arrested. My in-laws engaged in an intense discussion in a hijab shop. From their hand gestures, I surmised the topic was me. My mother-in-law wanted to buy me a scarf. My father-in-law wanted to be sure I understood they accepted me as I was and didn't want to change me. After I reassured them through my husband's translation that I didn't think they were trying to impose their culture on me, they purchased a scarf. My father-in-law placed it around my neck and indicated with hand gestures I should wear it the American way. Watching shop owners bend to my mother-in-law's will as she bartered while her husband stood in the background and enthralled me. My husband started to translate, but I held up my hand and said, I think I got it. At that moment, standing in a Standing in a foreign land where I understood no words, I wished I possessed her boldness. A common theme throughout my visit was the love and respect shown to my mother-in-law by her family and others alike. Immediately after our arrival, in all the excitement, everyone was talking at once except my mother-in-law. She sat, casting me an occasional smile, both comforting and encouraging at once. Without a word, she put me at ease. Then she spoke. My eyes widened as the room went silent and all eyes turned on her until she finished speaking. I had no idea what was said, but it was obvious her sons and husband placed great weight on her words. Just like in the United States, women handled most of the cooking, though my father-in-law helped when needed. One evening, my in-laws sat on the floor at a low-legged table while they stuffed zucchini and rolled grape leaves for the next day's meal. They worked together so efficiently, the work appeared choreographed. They'd obviously made this meal together many times before. I arrived in the Middle East expecting to have little in common with my husband's family. In the end, I discovered that we have much more in common than we think. The value placed on family, treating others well, doing the right things, and living a decent life transcend culture, religion, and country. Mothers from all over the world cry when their children leave their embraces. Fathers from every culture celebrate children's successes. Sons and daughters want to live a life that make, makes their parents proud. Family is the first place children learn how to see the world and to accept others. Mothers are particularly influential in children's upbringing in any culture. 
The women of the world hold more influence over its citizens than anyone else, regardless of culture, religion, or tradition. Well, see, I love this one as well, Chael, because it just gave a completely different perspective about women around the world, and it's so important that we're inclusive instead of exclusive. So thank you both for your wonderful, wonderful essays. Would you, I'd love you to give out your websites or any contact information so people can get more information. Maggie, why don't you go ahead and go first? Well, actually, if they want to get more information, if they could just send to my email address, uh, which is Margie, D-I-G-I, at Comcast.net, and I'll direct them from there. That sounds very, very good. And you have, you're working on another book right now? Yes, I am, but before saying anything about that, I want to say that not only does she show that women are more alike than different, she also showed that communication doesn't really need words. And it's key, isn't it? It's just so key to having all of us live a peaceful life on this planet. And, Tia, would you give out your contact information if you'd like to? Oh, certainly. My website is um, tlcooper.com, and my email is tlcooper at tlcooper.com. So you can go there and find out more about uh, both of these ladies. And I also just want to say that both of them will uh, have uh, essays in the new book, Be the Star You Are for Teens. We're so excited about that, which will debut in September of 2009. Congratulations once again for winning first prize. And we hope that you will stay in touch. And thanks for inspiring the world. This was Maggie and T.L. Thank you both for being here on Star Style, Be the Star You Are. Thank you, and congratulations, When we come back from break, we're going to be soaring and crashing as we speak with Holly Holland about bipolar disorder. Stay with us. You're listening to Cynthia Bryan. This is Star Style. Be the star you are. Back in just a minute. You're listening to World Talk Radio where the world comes to listen and talk. Hi, my name is Crystal Goodfellow, and I am a volunteer with Be The Star You Are charity. I'm here today to ask you to consider making a contribution to this worthwhile organization that encourages and empowers families and youth at risk by providing literacy and positive programming. Please visit the website at www.bethestarur.org or call the offices at 877-944-STAR. Since 1999, Be The Star You Are has served more than 20,000 individuals and families and donated more than $850,000 in resources to improve lives. Be The Star You Are needs your support. You can donate your vehicle, buy our signature books, or make a contribution online. Everything counts, especially you. www.bethestarur.org or 877-944-STAR. Thanks for helping the kids. Listen. Listen. Are you ready? The world is talking. Are you ready? World Talk Radio. Studio A.
You're listening to Star Style. Be the star you are with hosts Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. Be the star you are is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation to improve literacy and positive media. All contributions and donations are tax deductible. To comment on today's show, please call in toll free at 1-866-613-1612. That's 1-866-613-1612. Or send an email to info at be the star you are.org. Now back to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with the Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan. Be the star you are. Well, thank you, all you stars, for hanging in there with us. Holly Holland suffered through a traumatic childhood, always feeling different. Her adult life was equally difficult. She was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and had to find a way through the darkness. Her book is a memoir of her journey through manic depression. It's called Soaring and Crashing, My Bipolar Adventures. Holly is with us today. Welcome, Holly, to Be the Star You Are. Well, thank you, Cynthia, for having me. Well, Holly, your cover photo on your book, Soaring and Crashing, aptly describes the roller coaster ride that has been your life. We, I would first of all like you to tell us what is bipolar disorder and how does it originally manifest itself? Bipolar disorder is an extreme in moods of up and down. It is manifested generally uh, early adulthood. Uh, usually it's diagnosed about that time, although I knew about mine long before there was even a diagnosis for it. They called it manic depression back then. Right. Well, I mean, when you were a little child, you had many crying episodes, but you had this like awakening that time that you started, you, you started speaking to a bush that bloomed. And you actually were having vision, so you knew that something was different. Yes, that is correct. And in my teens, I used to know when people died before they died. You know, I, that was something that was very, very fascinating to me in your book, Soaring and Crashing, because this happened to you multiple times, as you would have this horrible uh, feeling or a premonition, and you would know that someone had died, or you'd feel somebody in the room, and then the phone would ring. Was there ever any anything that was said about that? Because, I mean, that's not part of bipolar disorder, is it? I mean, this is more of some kind of a premonition or a psychic ability. Well, bipolar disorder patients have an extra charged up limbic system and emotional center in the brain. And so it sort of acts like a bigger antenna in terms of perception than what the normal person may have. So this would explain that you were actually more in tune what was what was happening with your family, friends that were in other parts of the country than just a, a, a regular person who wasn't um, didn't have this disorder. Is that is that what you mean? That is correct. Well, I, I wanted to, to talk about this incredible. It was more than a fascination. It was and not a paranoia. It was an uh, it, you were obsessed with Neil Diamond, 
and you would hear in his songs as you thought he was actually speaking to you. And throughout your young adulthood, you made every effort to get to him because you believed he was going to marry you. Uh, marry you, yeah. And then together you were going to be able to save the world. And you actually flew to Los Angeles and had many, many adventures. Some very frightening. I mean, it's a wonder that you weren't killed with some of the things that happened. This was part of your manic uh, portion of the bipolar when you talk about manic depressive. This is when you're in the manic arena. Yes, the manic arena starts out with uh, getting very little sleep and everything suddenly takes on new meanings. Everything gets connected together and you think that you have a different reality than the other guy and you um, actually go into a delusional thought disorder. And when you're in this delusional uh, place, you really, even when people say, oh, that's crazy or that isn't, that can't be happening, you don't get it. Um, as you feel that they're the person that's wrong and that you have to follow through on what your mind is telling you to do, correct? That is correct. And so, for example, you have the stories in here. I mean, you, I was crying through some of the. I mean, some of them are funny, but so many are so sad, and you had so much trauma in your life. I mean, it really is a wonder that you were able to make it through it, but you would just meet random men and trust them and go back to their rooms with them, and, you know, you were raped and you were, you were hurt in many ways. How did you survive getting through that? Did, did you feel that you had at least one person that you could count on? I have always had in my life at least one person whom I could count on. I've always maintained friendships and relationships with men and women who are my friends and devoted friends. And of course, you you have been married, uh, married twice, and now you're widowed. But and that's I love that the, you got the name Holly Holland. That was just was so wonderful. But you actually had a premonition about your husband um, going to die as well. Yes, I did, and that's what precipitated another very serious manic episode. And of course, the premonition came true. He did get lung cancer and died. Uh, at a young age, and so I was widowed at uh, 13 years ago. Right, which is it is a very young age to be widowed. Now, tell us about the whole Neil Diamond, because what ends up happening, as I'm reading the book, I'm thinking the same thing is that everybody's probably thinking, oh, my gosh, what is she doing in Los Angeles? She's going to the agent. She's calling the attorneys. You know, you're trying to call the music companies, the production companies, everybody. You're going to be because you really believe you're supposed to be together. But then you had something almost miraculous happen where you wrote into a radio show, and next thing you know, you're actually talking with Neil Diamond, and he's thanking you. Yes, that was a turning point in my life because Delilah actually understood my need. I wrote in a story of Thanksgiving that she had requested, and I told her about the story how Neil Diamond's song, I Am I Said, literally kept me from suicide back in 72. And so Delilah, seeing a need for closure on that issue, 
uh, hooked me up with him. Well, and you had this really incredible conversation uh, on the phone. Have you had uh, have you, on the on live on the air on national radio? Have you had any contact with him since, or do you still have any of these illusions anymore of getting together with Neil Diamond? Or was that closure? It sounded like in your book it was closure, but since you've finished publishing your book, is it still closure? Oh, yes, absolutely. I view Neil Diamond as a person of of great talent and, and great wisdom, and he's just another person like you or me. Well, and also great compassion and empathy, because I think that having known how, you know, in today's day we would have almost called it stalking, how you were after him, he didn't look at it. He He thanked you for realizing that his song had saved saved your life, and you had a conversation about how we never know how we might be affecting someone else. And I thought that was just a beautiful, beautiful relationship that developed on the radio there. Right. Uh, When he said, I love you, Holly, for it, I about went through the roof. I couldn't, I never believed I'd ever hear Neil Diamond tell me that he loved me. Yes, well, and neither did your psychologist, did he? He, He's never thought that that would ever happen because he was, he has always been there for you trying to help you, you know, get through the, the difficult times. And that must have been, you know, just very, very exciting for him. And we're talking about Dr. William Dubin here. Yes, he was so touched by the replay of the of the taped recording that he had tears rolling down his face, and I've I've never seen him that touched before. Well, I thought it was funny because in your book you said that he had set some parameters that you couldn't call him at nighttime at home, et cetera. But you were so excited after this radio interview, you thought, okay, I'm going to do it, and then you wrote, oops. <laughs> Because he was like, what are you doing calling? But then after that, he was very excited for you because it was like a dream had actually come true. And then you were able, as you said, to give the whole thing closure. Well, when we talk about bipolar, there is not a cure. Is that correct? You can just do some kind of stabilizing and control through proper medication. Proper medication and and good uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Which is ongoing, correct? It is ongoing. as Everything in bipolar disorder is episodic. It either, you're either high for X period of time or you're low for X period of time, and there are even people who rapid cycle several times in one day. And I, we're talking about, for those of you who are just joining us, we're talking about uh, Holly Holland's new book, Soaring and Crashing. It is her bipolar adventures. And when we say adventures, she's been through it all. And it's a book that can really help anyone who may feel that they may have bipolar disorder or have any kind of mental illness and really need to work through the darkness. Or if you have a friend or a relative, this would be a very good book for them to read because that feeling of being alone has to be very difficult. I was reading about Glenn Close, uh, Holly, who champions mental illness. She's, you know, a spokesperson for it. And she said before she took on that job, she really had to think about it because of the stigma that's attached with any kind of mental illness. 
And what your message is is that people with bipolar can live very full, productive, honest, happy lives. That is true. Um, the It all goes into the effort that you put into it and principles of uh, believing that because you're in one state at a certain time does not necessarily mean that is the state you're going to stay in. Um, the Also, the Zen philosophy of the be here now, try to keep your focus on the here and now, not let it go off into uh, state-oriented thinking and and what's called ruminative self-focus, where your focus is only on yourself. Well, and today, how are you doing? Now that you've written, you've written this book, do you go through a period then of sort of what we would call a letdown because you, you know, you've accomplished this major goal and now what's next? Yes, that's what I ask myself. What do, what do I do for an encore? And I do my daily job and I have my friends that I interact with. And I'm hoping hoping to get some editing work uh, from a publisher to help keep me busy. Um, I have been in a rather big postpartum depression after finishing the book. You know, and but you know, I I don't know if that's so unique just to bipolar. I think that many many creative people go through. It's almost like postpartum. Depression, you know, after a woman has a baby, because you've basically birthed a book. And I know that I was, uh, I also was uh, reading about Dustin Hoffman, who after he won a Lifetime Achievement Award, went through a, a two-year depression thinking he would never act again, because what do you do, as you said, for an encore? So it must be a little bit difficult, though, when you have this disorder, because you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. You, you're wondering how are you going to keep busy, and, and how is your life going to, going to be enjoyable? This is true. The episodic nature of it, um, it, it's nice after you've been down for a while to see that light at the end of the tunnel and to, you've got to just keep planting seeds out there and hope that one will sprout and grow. Well, well, with that, let's give away your, uh, your website so that people can go to the website and get more information about the book. The name of the book is Soaring and Crashing, My Bipolar Adventures by Holly Holland. Give out the website. We'll give it out again, but just give it out now, too. Okay, thank you. It is www.holly-holy.com. And and you took that. Give tell a little bit about how the how music has influenced you because throughout your book you have a really great repertoire of music, don't you? Yes, and uh, basically, I was dating a paraplegic man, and after he died was when I had my first manic episode, and Neil's song. Uh, Holly Holy, I began to think, was written for me mm-hmm. because of the lyrics in the song. And um, all of a sudden started thinking that all music was being written for me because I was the uh, bride of Christ with yes, Neil right. B. You were Holy Holly. Pardon me? 
You were the Holy Holly. I mean, he sings Holly Holy, but you were Holy Holly. Right, right, that it was specifically for me. Right. And I believed that and developed a whole delusional, psychotic belief system around that. Well, I, that's why I found it interesting that when you actually got married and um, to your your husband, who has now uh, died, is that his last name was Holland because that was so close to Holly. It almost sounds like he gave you a stage name. Yes, it does. I I like the name very much. I like it. It's perfect as an author, isn't it? It looks good on a book. Holly Holland. Yes, H-O-L-L-A-N. it does. And is it difficult uh, to to start dating again? Because uh, as you have mentioned that in your book, you mentioned that sometimes people are afraid of someone who has had some kind of a bipolar disorder. They're afraid they're going to get out of control or something's going to happen. I, I have had a couple of occasions where I've started trying to date someone on the Internet and they have found out about it and said, no way, don't want to get involved. But others have been very open about it and and even have known some people with it and very accepting of it. Well, you know, there's many, many people who have the uh, bipolar. Many people are not diagnosed. But the more that you can get information out there, information is power. And this is why I honor you for being so honest in writing this book because you have barred nothing, everything from the really deep depression to the suicide attempts to the promiscuity to, you know, to drinking, to every everything is in this book. A name of the book, again, is Soaring and Crashing, My Bipolar Adventures. The author is Holly Holland, and it really, really is a roller coaster ride through the mind and all the different avenues that can happen to you. But today you are a web administrator for Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, and you are living a full life. I mean, despite you still have to struggle with it. But this is going to be ongoing, right? Yes, it is going to be, and I welcome the challenge and am still looking for viable options uh, to keep myself busy and to market the book. Well, congratulations on writing the book, and you know, maybe you'll have a part two. Is You know, life after you have soared and crashed, maybe it'll just be soaring again. Once again, Soaring and Crashing, My Bipolar Adventures by Holly Holland. Visit www.holly-holly.com. Holly, thanks for being a guest on Star Style. Be the star you are. We really appreciate it. And all blessings, and, and you go. Good for you. You, just, you, have, you get sore a little bit more than crash, all right? Well, thank you very much, and thank you so much for having me. Well, it's been a pleasure. You're listening to Cynthia Bryan on Star Style. Be the star you are when we come back. Dr. Kevin Fleming will be with us with his book, the half truth high stay with me world talk radio studio a Apathy, violence, and negative messages are everyday occurrences in our country. You can be a changemaker when you dare to care by supporting Be The Star You Are Charity, a 501c3 that empowers women, families, and youth through improved literacy, positive media, and tools for living. Visit www.bethestarur.org to find out how you can make a difference in our world. 
everyone counts. That web address again is www.bethestarur.org. Bethestarur.org. Are you living your dreams? Want to create a life you love but don't know how to begin? Lifestyle coach and personal growth expert Cynthia Bryan has jump-started the lives and careers of clients for over two decades with her signature star-style consultations with personalized sessions by phone or in person. You'll turn your passions into profits. Visit www.cynthiabryan.com or call 925-377-STAR. That's cynthiabryan.com or call 925-377-7827. Cynthia Bryan is your guide on the side. www.cynthiabryan.com CynthiaBryan.com. You can be the star you are. You're listening to World Talk Radio. You're listening to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with hosts Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. Be the Star You Are is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation to improve literacy and positive media. All contributions and donations are tax deductible. To comment on today's show, please call in toll-free at 1-866-613-1612. That's 1-866-613-1612. Or send an email to info at bethestarur.org. Now back to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with the Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan. Be the star you are. Thank you for staying with us. You are listening to Star Style, Be the Star You Are. Dr. Kevin Fleming questions whether self-help books, mantras, and all of that jazz, the feel-good remedies to success, actually do make sense, and they may be true, but they may not work. And in his book, The Half-Truth High, he breaks the illusions of these most powerful drugs in life and business. Welcome, Dr. Fleming, to Star Style, Be the Star You Are. Well, thank you. It's nice to be here with you. Well, much. Kevin, the first, from the first moment I read your chapter when the phone rang at 10.30 p.m. on that uh, night in Lar- Laramie, Wyoming, with the potential suicide, I was cheering for you. The way you handled the suicide attempt, in my unlearned and unpsychological mind, I, I thought you did, made the right choices, yet your superiors were outraged at what they thought was your utter disregard for established psychiatric uh, care. Tell us the story and why you eventually got so turned off because you love to uh, call yourself the shrink that doesn't like shrinks. <laughs> That's true. It, and I, I sort of fell into that sort of mode, I think, uh, by accident over the years. But uh, it was uh, through an accumulation of experiences that were very similar to like that uh, night in Wyoming. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's, it's a great kickoff point, uh, you know, to talk a little bit about the book because I think uh, that experience that evening and working with someone in a very non-traditional way who was, who was in stress and, and pain, it really spoke to the fact that, you know, one of the pr- most predominant half-truths that we hold as gospel in clinical psychology is, is that there's a right way to healing, a right way to, to uh, prevent suffering. Exactly. I mean, this is what to me was so profound is the bottom line was you saved this young man's life because you connected with him, mm-hmm. and you connected in a way that he needed to connect through music. Right. And playing your guitar, had you stuck to the rule book, he might have jumped. 
Yeah, yeah, and I think that's one of those those moments where uh, you know the follow the courage kind of mantra does have some uh, some wisdom to it. And I was just uh, it was a, a pivotal point for me from a paradigm shifting side when I really started processing some of the dialogues these guys were having with me afterwards when a life was saved and we were arguing about how. I just thought that was interesting, and I thought it was a real kickoff point to many things we do in life, whether it's with marriages or work and uh, with organizations, and no, no matter what they are, we sometimes are really, and the brain is loving this, we, we argue things to be right, not to be effective. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, I also wanted to agree with you. Some of the craziest people I have ever met are psychologists and psychiatrists. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and I don't think I, I don't think I'll count you among them. You seem to feel that that's definitely uh, a truism. Well, you know, I, I'd I actually throw, why I would throw myself in there, ironically, believe it or not, not from saying uh, to, you know pathological. Uh, I would certainly it, say think too much instead of feel, maybe. Yeah, well, I think there's eccentricity out there that really we as shrinks don't know what the hell to do with. And I think uh, that's a very different construct than psychopathology. And when it doesn't fit, we still will try to make it fit with some DSM-IV diagnosis. Um, and I think that's where we go wrong. We actually myopically miss out on the creativity of human beings. Well, something that came through loud and clear from this well, this um, episode that happened in uh, Laramie when this young man was going to jump uh, jump out of a window because he had flunked an exam and he was gay and he thought his parents would kill him, and you literally saved his life by connecting with him. And you talk about in your book the half-truth high is the importance of colleges and universities and student counseling centers, you know, around the country and any outreach programs to get more connected, to start, have a different approach than some of the ways that they have been doing. Could you tell us kind of what exactly do you mean by a half-truth and what would you like to see happening in counseling centers? Well, I think one of the greatest half-truths that I'm alluding to when I make that call for a change is uh, this half-truth, that credentials and experience equal maximum effectiveness. Oh, boy. Now, That's if you think about so it, true. that kind of sort of makes sense, enough for us to kind of keep paying the money we pay to go to a shrink every week. Or, And I certainly don't want to, you know, put down all my colleagues. As we know, this is a – I'm making one point uh, theoretically around this stuff, but not, you know, uh, making a, a global generalization. But I, it's enough – I think you almost have to push pretty hard on this field because it's such a big wave of humanity right now of going to this kind of this profession to do a lot of this work. And so I think what we sometimes get tripped up on is that, no, credentials aren't a one-to-one correlation to effectiveness, that they will obviously, it's a necessary but not sufficient condition for, for help with change. Um, well, and also it's very important if you are going to a credentialed, you know, person, and, you know, of course it's better to go to a credentialed person, is to make sure that they they really have more than just the credential, but they have, they, they're the right fit for you, and they have the manners and the ways that they can really help you, because as we find out throughout your book, The Half-Truth High, just book learning is not enough. There has to be some common sense in there. Yeah, and I and I think what fights what, what the enemy it is on that one is the brain. When you look at from my years of doing neuropsychology, the brain is wired really uh, to seek dissonance reduction. So really, just to kind of uh, get you out of in a state of anxiety when things don't make sense. 
Uh, and sometimes the, the, the common sense solution is thrown out the window because it's driven more by just reducing fear. And anything can be done, you know, to do that, including blaming other people. To, you know, uh, well, you have some great problems. chapters, and I love this chapter called Insulting Consulting <laughs> with the Six Half-Truths of Business. And I thought maybe we could go over a couple of these because the business success factor, number one, don't sit around wondering about what to do, just do it. I mean, we really have been pushed in that direction of just do it, you know, sort of like just leap in there. But that's, that really is a half-truth because movement doesn't equal improvement. That's exactly right, and uh, practice makes perfect. So you can practice, you know, uh, non-wisdom-based movement uh, to a T. I mean, you can get in there and make all your employees look like they're doing something very easily. But, you know, I always love that Seinfeld episode where, you know, George Costanza was learning how to kind of keep people off his back at work. You just have to keep your head down, you know, kind of get your brow, you know, kind of, turned down and really concentrated looking, walking through the hallways, looking like you're really studying something. People must, you know, people think you're working, you know, and you're doing something important. You know, I mean, I think there's a lot of this going on. That's not really the cure, is it? That's not the answer. No, but it's but it's an answer in one way from the human brain's perspective. It's an answer to kind of keep people away. Exactly, yes. But still, as, as much as action is important, we really have to uh, we really have to have something underneath that. Otherwise, it can end up being counterproductive. Oh yeah, especially from 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 the trust side. Now, the second success factor, because this is one when we are always told to have a vision and write your goals and have an endpoint in mind. Now, you could say this is a half truth because yes, it's important to you know define a, a vision and, and set your goals. But there's something else to keep you on track. I mean, we've got to be going in the right direction in the first place. Well, and yeah, and again, we're back to that fallibility of perception. Um, I can make a vision, but if my vision is grounded on faulty perception, misaligned assumptions, non-reality, then my vision is just going to be built on sand. And so I'm, you know, I, and again, most of the times these goal-setting type coaches that are out here doing this can always make you sound like you're motivated to achieve anything, but... You're actually not wired to achieve everything and anything sometimes. No, you're not. And, you know, that is getting to that whole idea, I guess, of, of just you can't push the river, you got to let it flow. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's the right. third success factor that you talk about, we're talking about the book, The Half-Truth High. Our author is Kevin Fleming, and he is a Ph.D., so Dr. Fleming, is make your pile of priorities. Mm. And then you ta- you say that this is a half-truth because, yes, it's good to get jazzed. Maybe you've graphed your urgency and your, your importance matrix. However, are we violating success factor number one because you're, becoming, you're coming from the reactive part of the brain? Yeah, many times, again, we're not, we're not really connected to why this is even important in the first place. Uh, I've won, in doing couples therapy many a times, so I've always been noticing people in session where they would very clearly be right that a divorce was was you know what they needed they did these kind of things where they were looking they had a vision they were making their priorities they knew what was was dominant for them and and of course the therapist always helped by saying empower 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 yourself which really just built this sort of uh spiritual narcissism is what i call it you know you can never walk away kind of questioning that because gosh that's i'm building myself of course i need to leave my marriage this is what i got to do you know and so you have and to nobody wants to admit that they're a narcissist oh no, no never 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 and I mean that's just so fundamental to everyone. You have a, we have a thought, and of course immediately when you think something, you're going to think about how well you thought that, and that's just 
That's just part of nature. And I think what I try to teach in my seminars or when I coach clients is when you call yourself crazy or call yourself a narcissist or you do this kind of stuff, it's okay. I mean, because you actually ironically get more leverage from working with human beings when you call it the way it is. And my book is really just trying to say there's nothing to be threatened by this. It's just what is. It's this is what is. And, yeah. and just because if somebody says it's so doesn't mean it's so. Yeah. And I like that. Now, that is such a great lead-in to the success factor number four that you write about uh, that is all about win-win. You know, everybody wants a win-win, but the truth is you can't always win-win. There's usually a loser somewhere. Yeah, yeah, and, 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 and that's, that's sort of the ugly truth of it all, but in fact, sometimes it's really good for a company or an executive, if I'm doing executive coaching, to realize that what's really good for their development is to lose this particular battle that they're on. Um, but, of course, when you're dealing with the ego, that's also there. You know, you get this sort of push-and-pull dynamic. But, you know, win-wins, uh, those, that kind of pop term really just builds compliance, not commitment sometimes. Yeah, so, I mean, I mean there are times when everybody can come out fine, but in so many business dealings, there's, somebody's always going to get the heads up. So that one I thought was, that was a very interesting half-truth. And the fifth one in this chapter, Insulting Consulting, is to get a, a a detached understanding of the other other people's position or the other company's position, but then the half truth is is what if you're you know not authentic? Yeah, which is and again, it's really trying to pull and all these half truths have a common theme, which is saying, you know, we're really not as pious and righteous and smart as we think, you know, and including the consultants running around the corporate hallways. Certainly, they have some great wisdom, but what I try to teach in the neuroscience of leadership type work I do is I, I basically am the uh, the lens that runs all the consultant's knowledge through how your brain's going to process it. So it's not that these people who are consultants have, it's not that they don't have good knowledge, but what we usually miss out on is how the brains of the people receiving it are processing that information. One thing that I was really enchanted with is how you were so influenced by C.S. Lewis and the screw tape letters. Mm. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, yeah, it's kind of interesting to have sort of, you know a theologian kind of uh, be uh, have the book dedication. Um, but C.S. Lewis in that classic book, Screw Tape Letters, if listeners aren't aware of it, is a it's a wonderful um, exercise in in looking at the confusion uh, underneath sometimes spiritual discernment and how we can feel like we're on the right path but not. And it's really structured in a very interesting way where you ha- if you're if you're not sharp on it, you'd have to catch yourself reading the book because you almost get yourself caught in some of the things that you're not supposed to be believing. But mm-hmm. it's written uh, where this senior or father demon is writing these letters to this uh, younger demon through these letters, teaching him how to go out there and confuse humanity and make people think they're very righteous and spiritual. So as you read it and you go, you know, this is a strategy we're using and it seems to be working on Johnny and over here, you kind of go, yeah, I do that too. And you go, oh, wait a minute, I'm not supposed to be doing that, you know. And what I realized was the, the, the model itself of the half-truth was so brilliantly done in that book that really this is not just a spiritual issue. Uh, this is something that's actually going on all the time in dialogues and in marriages and in corporations. We are spinning half-truths all the time, just enough to make us feel we're right. So, you know, we're usually smarter than putting out a lot of BS, but they are just enough to make people go, yeah, he's got it, he's our man, you know. Well, you know, you had a couple of lines that caught me here, and it, and because it's true how people say, oh, you know, I'm not religious, I'm just spiritual, or I go to church, or blah, 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 blah. But then you said, you know, you don't hear people say, I've got too much money in my bank account, or I have too much good health. 
I mean, that that hit me like a ton of bricks. Those, that was really, that was important stuff there. But now, it's you coach, you, you left that whole kind of academic psychology, and now you are, you know, coaching and writing, et cetera. And you had a really interesting encounter when you were flown into Orange County to coach very wealthy, influential people. And, again, it sort of came full circle as I really loved the way you approached it because you're thinking to yourself when you go in there, hey, these people have, are billionaires, they've they made it, they're successful, they're, you know, movie stars, et cetera. So they were going to look at you like, how can you help me? Oh, yeah. But but you you were able to come at them with the truth and the half-truth. Talk about that because I think all of us sometimes – want to be somebody else and what yeah. you did is you were just yourself imperfection yep. at, at all that's exactly right and 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 when we were doing this work uh, for listeners that you know aren't aware of some of the work i do i i do a lot of executive coaching life coaching but i also have a specialty dealing with addictions a lot of these high profile people who also have an addiction component based on the clinical background it's a nice blending because i've got all those different trainings but uh, yeah i was working out in the malibu scene which is the hot spot for addiction rehab work and uh, going out there weekly <clears throat> from Jackson Hole where I was, and uh, it was a very nerve-wracking kind of introduction to the culture because this is something where you can easily, like you were in, alluding to, get intimidated by it. And I realized in, brief, in these moments right before I walked into these sessions with these guys, and, was, and there were faces everybody have seen. It was a, basically a Dr. Drew type episode, you know, um, that there was nothing I could do to be as perceive you know in a high competent way there was nothing there was no brilliant statement there was nothing that could actually uh make them go drop to their knees and go hallelujah you know uh i was simply a guy uh hired to go give some insights to you know to work with these people and once i tapped into the a paradoxical humility of, of where i go i am nothing <laughs> uh but a man who cares and from here magic will happen you know. And and magic did happen. Well, let's give out your website so people can contact you and bring you in for coaching. You'll travel anywhere. It's drkevinfleming.com. Is that the website you want to give out? Sure. Uh, D-R-K-E-V-I-N and then uh, F-L-E-M-I-N-G. Yep, dot, dot com. Drkevinfleming.com and it's drkevinfleming. The name of his book is The Half Truth High, Breaking the Illusions of the Most Powerful Drug in Life and Business. I really think that you'll be inspired by it, and you will find something in there that you'll be saying, catching yourself saying, oh, my gosh, I do that. I'm that. So just come to the table and be yourself. Kevin, thank you for being a guest on Star Style, Be the Star You Are, and showing me my half-truths. I love it. I appreciate it. Thanks again for having me, guys. Thank you. You've been listening to Cynthia Bryan on Star Style, Be the Star You Are. Thank you so much for being great guests. Visit BeTheStarYouAre.org. Make a donation, a contribution. Get on board and help others improve their literacy and positive media. Until we celebrate next week, have a great week and be the star you are. I'm Cynthia Bryan. Ciao for now. Choices in your heart a showbiz Where you are Let the music start